If you would, take your Bible this morning and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. As we've been studying the Gospel of John, we've seen that John begins with a punch, a a strong assertion, an astounding assertion. He speaks to the reality that Jesus is the one who was before the beginning. He is the beginning of beginnings in verses 1 and 2. And He is the one, He is the Word, He is the Logos, by whom everything else that has been made was made. And we've seen that in Him is life and that the darkness does not overcome, excuse me, in Him is light and life and the darkness does not overcome the light. We see the the reality of the spiritual battle that is waged in this life here in these first few verses. And then then we also see the, the reality that John the Baptist was a witness to that light in verses 7 through 8. And last week, we saw that Jesus in verse 9 is coming into the world. And He had made everything in the world. Nothing was made except that He made it. And yet this world that He created, that He sustained, even while He was an infant, a babe in the manger, that world did not receive Him. The default position of the world is that it is in spiritual darkness under the reign of Satan. And so when Christ comes, it is not the default position that we receive Him. It's the default position that we reject Him. But then there are following two great transitions. In verse 17, excuse me, verse 12, But all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. That that word right translated into, uh, you could also understand it as authority or power. Those who have the authority to become the children of God have believed, have received Christ. And we asked the question last week, well how does that happen? Well, verse 13 gives the answer. We are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. That is, not by natural conception, nor by natural birth, nor of the will of man, but of God. So here is the Creator of all things, and as it turns out, He's also the Redeemer of all things. He is the One who redeems. So with those truths in the back of our mind, let us rise today and do honor the reading of God's Word, starting in verse 14 today. John writing here under the inspiration of God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then this parenthetical, John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me because He was before Me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent the priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask Him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked Him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He answered, No. So they said to Him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who have sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had seen that they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one You do not know, 
Even he who comes after me, the strap whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is God's word to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence so immeasurably thankful for the joy of the Lord's table that we've shared in, the remembrance of Christ's suffering in our place, the joy of knowing that He's coming again. And Father, we gather around Your Word today knowing that these are our oracular words. These are words that You have spoken through Your Apostle. Father, might they be inscribed on our hearts today. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. What we really have in the opening of John's Gospel is a direct refutation of Gnostic paganism. Here he begins again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here we have the One who was before the beginning. He is the Word who is Creator. He is the Word who has come into the world. He is the One who reveals the glory of of God. And if you remember, Gnosticism is that ancient heresy that says material is bad, spirit is good. Some of you have probably heard this statement in our day and age. It's not that we are human beings having a spiritual experience, it's that we're spiritual beings having a human experience. And I see faithful Christian like statements like that all the time. The only problem with that statement is that it is a direct declaration of Gnosticism. It is pitting the material against the immaterial. And what we have here in John chapter 1 is one who created all things, who, who took on flesh, who has dwelt among us. And in verse 14, we now see that in Christ we see His glory. Now there are two realities about this glory that verse 14 speaks of. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the question here is, what is this? First, this is the glory of the only Son from the Father. Here we have the Father and the Son. We have the Father sending the Son. We have the Father with the Son. We have the Son as God. We have the Father as God. And if we remember the syllogism that we began with a couple weeks ago, if we want to espouse Trinitarian theology, there are four statements that we have to make. And those four simple statements are that God is one. The Father is God, the, Spirit is, the, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. That is an expression of Trinitarian theology, and we find it reflected here. This glory reflects the only Son from the Father, but there is something else about this glory, and it is this, and it's why the words are written in the lobby, in the, the narthex of the church this morning, that He was one full of grace and truth. Now we have to ask this question. What does that mean? We've walked by those words for a better part of two, maybe even three years now. But what do they mean? That Jesus is full of glory and full of grace and, and truth. Well, what is John pointing to here? These are not just John going, okay, I'm going to write a gospel And I have a word count that I need to meet, otherwise I'll fail my gospel writing class. That's not how writing gospels go. Uh, The the assigner of writing the gospel is the one that actually inspires the writing. Boy, that that would become helpful in an academic setting. The one who assigns you the paper to write gives you the words that you need to complete the assignment. I just thought of that. That'd be fantastic. Doesn't work that way. Here, John's not just trying to fill up space. He's declaring something very important and very intentional about the living God, about Christ. And we'll be told in coming verses, many of them, that every soul that is saved is saved by grace alone. That is one one of John's primary arguments in his Gospel. But we're not quite there yet. We have been told in verse 13 that we are born of God. So that the truth is already here in a budding form. But here we are told that this Word, who ultimately accomplishes our redemption, has created all things, was before the beginning of beginnings, 
He is the one that is full of grace and truth. What is grace and truth? Well, grace here is another word for God's salvation. God sending His Son coming into the world, a world of darkness that will not know Him. And this Christ is the Word that is saturated with grace. He is filled. He is overflowing with grace. He is overflowing with the ability to save. He is full to the fullest that you can think. Think for a moment how full full is and go beyond that. That's how full Christ is of a saving ability to complete our redemption. John chapter 14 records, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. He is the only mediator and propitiator of salvation. What we learn here is there is no other way. He's the only one full of grace. Here, we find the one full of unmerited favor, full of salvation. We are also told here that He is not only full of salvation, He's not only full of grace, but He's also full of truth. Now now we come to the word truth and we might gloss over that and just think He's talking about general truths. And some even argue, well, what what is really being spoken of here? The, The truth that is being talked about is the incarnation because John is so anti Gnosticism. This has to be the truth of the incarnation. And I think that's true, but it's not the full truth of the truth that he was full of. I hope that makes sense. There's a fuller orbed understanding of what it means that he was full of grace and truth. He he came, again, full of salvation. And this word truth, then, should be understood as revelation. Full of the fullest measure of both the ability to save and the ability to reveal God to a lost and a dark world world. He came full with the fullest measure of salvation and revelation from God. Look at verses 16 through 18. For from His fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. In John chapter 14, starting in verse 8, we remember Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it, it will be enough for us. Remember how Jesus responded in that moment? He, it, Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus is saying in that moment, not only is He full of grace, but I am the full revelation of the Father. I express, I reveal the fullness of the truth of the revelation of who God is. Now, now in this passage, I, I think we need to slow down here. In, in verse 15, uh, we have John, this parenthetical. John bore witness about him and cried out, this, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, In verse 5, we've already been told that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness hasn't overcome it. And then in verse 6, we find that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. That John was the witness to the light that had come. But here in verse 15, we see what that witness is like. John preceded Jesus in his birth. He was before Jesus in birth order. He came into this world in flesh prior to Christ. But he is merely a forerunner. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Again, Jesus was after John in birth, but he was before John in power and in glory. He came before John, not only John, but all of creation. Jesus is the one who is before the beginning of beginnings. So John could say, I came before him and yet he came before me. 
John is acknowledging the reality that he is not the Messiah, but he is the one who points to, who witnesses to the Messiah. So when we hear that Jesus is full of grace and truth, we should, it should ultimately sear into our minds that, that this Christ, the one who was before the beginning of beginnings, who is the light of the world, who created everything that is, He is the one who is saturated, who is overflowing with salvation and revelation of Almighty God. I don't know about you, but I come here this morning thankful, well, thankful for all of the words that we find here, but in particular, the one that is inscribed as full. I'm glad that when we read this morning, it doesn't say that Jesus came with, with a little grace. He came with some, some truth. No, that's not what is said here. He is full of salvation. He is full of revelation. And that fullness of salvation and revelation... Now, now think about this. Think about this in the context of what we've already learned. This is the one who created all things and He is the light and light of the world and He showed up into His creation. He took on flesh, dwelt among us, and yet this is the best news there is. He, he's full of grace. He's full of truth. Full of salvation. Full of revelation. He's shown up. We would obviously receive Him. But we don't. Not in our own ability, not in our own strength. The salvation, though, and, and this is the transition, we are the ones who have believed on Him. Those who have repented and placed their finished faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are the ones who have been born of God. And so when we hear about this salvation and this revelation, if we are in Christ, it should not bore us, but it should compel us. Because this salvation and revelation, this grace and truth that came in Him in the fullest measure, is the very salvation and revelation that we receive. It's that which brings the light of life into our own lives. It's that which brings us from darkness to light. This grace points to the salvation of God's unmerited favor. When we think of John 3.16, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Again, that's not an invitation. It's a declaration that God has saved some for His glory and He's done it in spite of all of us. He came full of grace and truth. Do you know what we came full of? Sin and rebellion. I'm so thankful that the grace that He came, the revelation that He brought, has not been trampled by our sin. But conversely, our sin, our rebellion, has been overwhelmed by the grace that He has brought. In fact, I think that's what John is driving at in verse 16. For from His fullness we have received grace upon grace. I think John anticipates the human question that we're going to come to this theme of salvation and, and, and we're going to say something like, well, okay, but we received Jesus, but then we messed up. Uh, we received Christ, but, but then. And here John is saying, no, 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 grace upon grace. He is lavishing His grace, His salvation upon you. This isn't a salvation that you could accomplish. This is a salvation that only Christ could accomplish. And then we have this curious statement. Look with me in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Do you remember when we went through John's first letter that, that I told you that John is kind of a cyclical writer? That he doesn't just do what Paul does and go A, B, C, D and move on. He kind of keeps swirling, right? And that's what he's doing here. Because uh, we, we come to verse 17 and, and we found all of these great declarations of who Christ is. And, and we find out that John is the witness. And we find out that our Savior is full of grace and truth. That He came with enough grace and enough revelation to redeem those that He intended to redeem. He came with all of those things. And then, 
almost out of nowhere. Yet we received grace upon grace. And then this pivotal statement, for the law it was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And we have to ask the question, why this and why now? Why, why at this point? We have grace and truth, salvation and revelation of Christ. We, we have the, the parenthetical of John as a witness, but now Moses? A law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I think part of what we have to do here, if we're going to interpret this rightly, is we have to put on our Jewish mindset, which is not the most easy thing to do. I don't know about you, but I wasn't raised with a Jewish mindset. So we come to these texts, and I think often we miss what's here. What we have to remember is the, the, the knee-jerk reaction of the Jewish people. You remember in John chapter 9, after Christ has healed the blind, uh, here in verse 26, they, they said to Him, what did He do to you? How did He open your eyes? And He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become His disciples? Now that was not a good question to ask the religious crowd in this particular moment. Because they're not happy about Jesus. And this blind man says, do you want me to tell you the news again that He he restored my sight? And nowhere in this context is His human volition lauded just for free. Do you want me to tell you again? Do you want to be His disciple? That sets them off because we go on to hear this. And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Moses was a looming figure in the Bible. He was given political authority to lead the nation. He was a prophet in that through Moses came the law. Some of you, how? Well, God spoke to Moses. God inscribed his law on tablets and and Moses spoke to the people. Moses also, in some sense, before the system is fully established, was in some sense a priest. He would mediate between God and the people. And so there was this reflex in Jewish life that we are the people of Moses. He is prophet, priest, and ruler par excellence. We are His disciples. And so what we find here is in verse 17 is that earlier in John, John has made it very clear that there is a distinction between Jesus and John the Baptist, that John the Baptist is the witness of the light, but he is not the light. Let's not be confused. Now here, John clarifies the distinction between Moses and Christ. Moses was that that natural person for the Jewish population to identify with. If there was a question, their knee-jerk was to return to Moses. And the question that I think we have to then ask, if Moses was a ruler, and if Moses served in the place of, of, of priestly intercession, and if Moses spoke as God told him to speak as a prophet, then what does that say about Jesus that we're having to make a delineation here? Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Do you see see the the parallels of, of how Hebrews starts and how John starts? Here we have... The, the, the pre-existent Christ who is the Creator. He is the exact imprint of the Father. And he says so plainly, God spoke to our fathers by prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. It's a few pages. 
And we find this. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And, and we are His house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. What, what, what we learn here, and I think what John is driving at, is Jesus is full of more glory than Moses. And he knows that the Jewish people are going to have a knee-jerk re- reflex to Moses, but John is saying this morning, Jesus is before Moses, He created Moses, and ultimately He holds more glory. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Well, what does that tell us about the law? What does that tell us about what the law, the, the point of the law in the life of the nation? Well, we struggle with the law in our own day and age, and I haven't met a person that I think, boy, they have all of what it means to interact with the law perfectly. In fact, I can promise you I've never seen that. But how did, the, how did the people relate to the law? Do you, do you remember that passage in Luke chapter 2? Simeon is, is there, and the, the, Luke chapter 2, many of you know, is one of my favorite passages. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this, was, this man was righteous and devout, waiting on the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the law. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought it up, this law to do according to the custom, uh, he took him in his arms and he blessed it and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your law, that, in, that you have prepared before all people a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory your people Israel. Those of you who are paying attention know that I'm not reading that correctly. Simeon wasn't waiting on the law. Simeon wasn't waiting around saying, oh, thank goodness, the law is here. He he never came to a point in his life, he lived with the law. But he never came and rejoiced, thank goodness, the law will deliver me. I can depart in peace. The law would never bring Simeon to say I can depart in peace because Simeon knew that he was a breaker of the law. What we learn in this, in this one verse, in verse 17, when we are told that for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, is that the law was never meant to save. In any generation, the law has never brought about salvation. Paul makes that clear in Romans. No one has kept the law. Now, As soon as I say that, there's a whole crowd of antinomian-leaning people, and we are those at any moment who want to say, good, then we don't need to worry about the law. Or we can despise the law. And that's not the case either. There are really three purposes, and we can split hairs here. But there are three purposes. One, the law identifies us as sinners in need of grace. So was Simeon despising the law as he waited on the consolation of Israel in Luke chapter 2, rushed into the temple, picked up Jesus, and declared to all generations, I now can depart in peace. Was he antithetical to the law? No. That law had served in Simeon's life to point out a, real, a reality that Simeon needed a Savior. And Christ, the Messiah that God would send, was the only Savior that would do. So it identifies us as sinners in need of Christ's grace. It also points to a rightly ordered life individually. It shows us what is good and right. Here's the reality. Adam and Eve didn't have the law because Adam and Eve were in a state of righteousness and were were inclined to obey God 
but prior to the fall and, and commune with him. But after the fall, everything has changed. I think one of the major problems with our theology, with our understanding of God, is that we, we really underestimate the, the, the catastrophe of the fall. We underestimate how far-reaching the fall is. We think, well, Adam and Eve messed up and God kicked them out of the garden, but they still knew what to do. No, in that moment, they were spiritually dead. They had no clue of how to live their life righteously before God. And so God, in His loving kindness, gives His, His people, as He calls them together, the law, a, a, an understanding of how to live righteously before Him. Uh, an understanding of how to approach Him. An understanding and much of the law is really a prescription of how to come back to Him to be restored to Him. But again, all it proves is that we aren't able. You, you see, the, the, the law points out that we are fallen, but it also points to the reality that there is a righteous character. That, that, that we must obey God if we are to claim that we want to honor God. So, so the law points out that we are sinners. It identifies our need for grace that Jesus was full of. It, it points to a rightly ordered life. It also, and now we get into the difficult territory, it also points how to rightly order society. Now, I'm, for those of you that might be wondering, are you a theonomist? Theon theonomy is this idea that if we reinstitute the Old Testament law, uh, that we are, and this is tied to, uh, invariably it has to be tied to an eschatology. We need to reinstitute the law because when we establish that law and we, we politically have the structures right, then Jesus returns and all of those things. And the answer simply is, no, I'm not a theonomist. And, and part of the reason I'm not, the reason I'm not a theonomist, I think I can say it succinctly this way as a friend has, is because I'm a conversionist. I don't, think that the, I don't think the United States is going to change because we put the right laws on the books. The United States will change as God in His sovereign authority and power converts the hearts of sinful men back unto Himself. The laws will follow, but conversion has to lead the way. And so here, some people will say, so because we're not theonomist and we're not reinstituting the law, then we don't need to worry about the commands of God when we come to civil order at all. And that's not true either. Um, I don't know about you, but how, uh, w would you like to live in a nation this morning where there is no law against murder? If you stand up and say, yeah, that'd be great, then you probably think more highly of yourself and you'll be the first one to go. We need laws that regulate human behavior externally. And friends, I, I, just, I will make this argument short and succinct. I've been watching the news lately and reading the paper, and I don't think that, you know, when Adam and Eve walked out of the garden, I don't think that as we walked into Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., that we were redeemed there and we're doing a better job of legislating ourselves. We still need the wisdom of God. We still need to lean into how God would have us order our society. I believe that wholeheartedly. So the law does give us a right way to order society. It gives us, and friends, this is the whole basis of why we can stand as pro-life people against the murder of innocent children. Because that is clearly against the moral imperatives of the Word of God. To murder a child in utero is one of the most demonic actions that a society can ever undertake. If you look at our current legislature, what you have is a good case study in Romans chapter 1. But we have conceitedly believed we can do better. I promise you we can't. And all of this points... All of this points to the dignity of Moses, the role of Moses. And again, Moses would go before God, and for the theonomistic crowd, the odd reality is in the context here, they had the law, but they never lived by it. And so Moses would go continually before God, 
pleading on behalf of the nation. In, in Numbers chapter 14, we find these words, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise Me? And how long will they not believe in Me in spite of all the signs that I have given among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater, greater and mightier than they. And what does Moses do? Does he say, okay, and move out of the way? No. Moses intercedes for the people. Moses prays for the people. Moses is in a priestly state there, but that should point us not to Moses, but to 1 John chapter 2. As John writes, my little children, I am writing these things so that, that to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, wrath-bearing sacrifice, for our sins, and not only our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. Jesus has a different glory than Moses. Moses is the lesser. Jesus is the fullness. Christ is is look at verse 17 again for the law came through Moses grace and truth came through Jesus Christ Christ here is not just a passing name it's a title Jesus is Messiah Jesus is consolation of Israel as the one who sets on David's throne as the one who brings about salvation and revealing of who God is No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's right side. But Christ has made Him known. We see such a full-orbed, rich Christology in these first verses. We see the reality that Christ is greater than John, that Christ is greater than Moses, but then here we have the religious crowd that's going to show up and spoil the party. I mean, this would be a great... Verse 18 ends, and we could just all praise God. But the Pharisees say, not on my watch. Look with me at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Boy, that's really putting it emphatically. He confessed, did not deny, he confessed. I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He answered, no. And so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? It's interesting, isn't it? They, they show up to interrogate John because John is baptizing people. And John answers by saying, well, let me tell you who I am by telling you who I am not. John knows these Jewish rulers want a Messiah that will set them free from all of their current political problems. And if you think that that's a problem only for the Jewish uh, uh, population, you're dead wrong. It's in the church all over the place. You know how many Christians come week in and week out saying and praising God, but in their heart of hearts, they're really waiting on a political solution. That is a problem that we need to repent of. And here John pushes back from that. He says, let me tell you who I am not. I'm, I'm not the Christ. And so they go on and interrogate. Are you Elijah? No. Are you a prophet? No. In verse 22. So they, they say, well, we need an answer. And so here comes John's declaration. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. This is not misunderstood in, in, in John's context. It, it, quoting Isaiah, and this reference would have been understood that, that when the king was traveling, there would be a whole group of people who would go before the kings and they would remove the rocks and they would remove the debris and they would remove any hindrance to his coming, making way for the king, getting things ready. And here we have... The full revelation in verse 24 of what is told to us that in verse 11 that His own people did not receive Him. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Those religious leaders were already here troubling John. And we know that they're going to be part of the darkness all throughout John's narrative. But then we 
we come to verse 25 and we find out that really they're the problems. They're the ones that are posing Christ at His coming. He's full of salvation. He's full of revelation. And yet, here the religious people who stand and declare God's Word to the people are hiding that salvation and that revelation. It's true in our day as well. And so they ask Him, okay, if you're not the Messiah, and if you're not a prophet, you're not a priest, you're not a king, then what in the world is this baptizing thing? Look at verse 25. Then they asked Him, why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor a prophet. Here we have the reality. I've got to hurry here. But the reality of how John got his name. John got his name by what he did. I find some people in our day and age get kind of high-minded and and pretty haughty and arrogant, and they will say things like this, well, I don't claim any denomination. I just want to do what the Bible says. Well, me too. But inevitably, if you do that, then you're going to be a Baptist. (laughs) Kidding. In all seriousness... Uh, what we need to understand about denominational names is, is that they don't come. I think some people misunderstand that, that denominational monikers come because, um, well, a bunch of guys get together in a room and they go, okay, what are we going to call ourselves? Well, we'll be the Baptists. We'll be the Methodists. We'll be the fundamentalists. That's never how this washes out. What happens is there's a theological controversy, a question about the Bible, and the answer to that question removes a group of people unto themselves, and then who gets to name that group of people is never the group of people. It's pejoratively the people that they left. Because they'll point to them and they'll say, oh, they're lesser than. And so Baptists, we got our name because we're going to dunk you. And amongst a bunch of other things. And that's a really nebulous term. I don't want to dive in there. But I'm a fundamentalist in the early 19th century. Uh, you know, Harry Emerson Fosdick asked the question, will the fundamentalists win? There was never a meeting of the minds for people who believe the Bible to get together and say, hey, we're going to call ourselves fundamentalists. Fundamentalism was a pejorative term, a way of mocking these people that believed that the Bible's actually true and we should, we should push back against liberalism. Now the question asked, will fundamentalism win? If you answer that question in the year 2023 based off of numbers, I think the answer is no. But get back to me on Judgment Day and I think the answer will be yes. And ultimately not the fundamentalist, but the God of the fundamentalist. The same thing happens with Methodists. The Methodists were part of the Anglican movement and... And they came up with this method, this rigorous way of becoming holy, and they stuck by this method to the point that they were called Methodists. Now if you drive around town, you're going to see Methodists all over. It's kind of funny to me. People will fight over the name on the sign. And friends, I'm a Baptist. If there's any question about that, come talk to me. I'm a Baptist. But I'm not a Baptist in the way that I have to... Never mind. I just think it's hilarious that what what we get into is fighting over a name, and I'm like, you do realize that's a bunch of other people making fun of you about two centuries ago, but never mind. We want to be biblical people, and here, the point, John is baptizing people, and they want to know why. Now, what's happening here is really important. And we have to think, again, in this... In this Jewish mentality, they're asking Him from their perspective, uh, we have to put ourselves in their shoes, then why are you baptizing if you're not Christ, if you're not the Savior, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, why baptize? What is this? Is this baptism of John a ritual cleansing, moral cleansing, symbolism? Is it a picture of birth? Is Is it some right... What we're told in the Bible is this, that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. John's baptism is different than, than, than other baptism. It's not that of new life or new birth. It's one signifying turning from sin unto Christ. Again, remember, this, comes, this question comes in the Jewish context, and we have to answer it from that perspective And in that perspective, and we're not going to walk through all of 
Leviticus this morning, unless you want to. Um, but it's pretty prescriptive. And every time there was an impurity, every time there was a sin in the camp, every time there's a particular issue that would, that would hinder uh, fellowship with God, fellowship with others, there are these lustrations or these, these washings that God has prescribed. Some are for men, some are for women. All of them point to a cleansing. And, and so the question is, why are you cleansing if you're not the Messiah, if you're not the one that's come to save, why are you the one doing this? Because you're not a prophet, you're not a priest, you're not the Messiah. We're not understanding. And John says in verses 26 and 27, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He's saying, look, I know you're looking for the one who will save. I know you're looking for the one who will set you free politically. I know that you're looking for the consolation of Israel. I am not that one, but I'm preparing the way for him, and he is already here. I am not him. My baptism, my washing, is one that you will have to come back to again and again and again. But there is one who is coming. When He cleanses you, He will cleanse you with fire. He will wash you and make you whole. What John is doing is he's pointing to these Pharisees that they need something more than merely His baptism. They need a once-for-all atonement. And in verse 29, he points directly the very next day to that reality. In, in verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You won't need ceremonial washing anymore. You will have a once-for-all atonement in this Lamb. You won't wash your sins away in His blood for a time but He will bear them for all time. That's what John is pointing to. And John is showing us here in, in these verses that our salvation doesn't come through lustrations, through washings, through rites. As Baptists, we don't believe that that water saves anybody. It doesn't come through the law. It doesn't come by Moses. The, the emphasis of this whole text is bound up in verse 13. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son full uh, from the Father, full of grace and truth. The only way that we are saved is through the revelation of Christ and the salvation that is in Him fully. Nothing else will do. Don't look for it in the law. Don't look for it in, in, in ordinances. He is full of salvation. He is full of revelation. It comes, our salvation, only by knowing Christ. Friend, if you're here today and you are the most diligent, rigorous, religious person, but you've never truly trusted in Christ and in His mercy alone, you're not saved. You must turn to Christ and trust in Him and in Him alone for salvation. And all of the rest of the Bible, what I want you to see in this passage is, is a great template of what the rest of the Bible really does. John here is laying out who Jesus is and he comes to John and he says, John was so vital and you've all heard about him. Jesus is greater than John. And he turns to his Jewish friends and he says, I know that you remember Moses and you consider yourselves his disciples, but Jesus is better than Moses. And what John, I think, really leans into in this entire passage that Jesus is the fullness of the revelation. All of these other people are merely revelators. Instruments that God has spoken through. But Jesus is the one with the fullness of the revelation of God and salvation. Moses, John the Baptist, Paul, Noah, Jonah, Abraham, John the Apostle that's writing this letter all point to the one who will take away the sins of the world. And He is the only one. The singular Savior of the world. So on that, we have one question today, and it's this. Do you know Him? 
Look at the end of verse 18. He, Jesus, has made Him known. I want this question to linger in your mind. I I want you to really wrestle with it. Do you know the living God? It's not enough to know about Him. Do you know Him through Christ? You know, it's so interesting that in our day, as the church has started to, to in some sense, have a, a recession in the culture and all of those things, so many men and church movements and women have talked about this before, will come before a group of people and they'll say, well, we're going to lose the church. In fact, this is the whole import of, of liberal theology. Their whole argument is if we don't change the message of the church, we'll lose the culture and we won't have a church. So we need to liberalize with the culture. It's not working out well. As we take the Word of God, if we deviate from its purpose, then we deviate from the ministry altogether. And there is one singular purpose that should be at the forefront of our ministry and our lives, and it's the same one that Jesus had. It's to make Him known. It's to make His name great among the nations. So the question this morning knowing that Jesus is better than Moses, He's better than John, He's better than Paul, He's better than David, He's better than every other person before Him who God revealed truth about Himself through. Do you know this Christ? It's in Him and Him alone that you have salvation. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before You so thankful that You sent Your Son into the world full of grace and truth. You sent Your Son into the world to redeem completely, perfectly, and eternally all of those that You have given Him. Father, Your Gospel is a sure thing. We're not asked to qualify it, but to herald it. Might we use our lives to ask the question of our children and our grandchildren, our co-workers, our neighbors. Do you know my King? Do you know Christ? Father, might we be faithful to steward your gospel, the gospel of the one who is full of salvation and revelation. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand and we'll sing all glory be to Christ.